When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic. From the perspective of the other, I'm Royfield Brown, who's in Burlington, which is in Greater Ontario, the Golden Horseshoe. So last week we had Chris Williamson, who's been suspended by the Labour Party, on the show. And I think we had somewhat of a robust debate for about an hour. Uh, Royfield, this is Phil Pomerantz. I did enjoy your interview with Chris Williamson and I have a response I'm an American, however, my late mother was English, and I still have family there. I'm Jewish, and both I and my family have significant concerns about what has happened to the British Labour Party, and that interview demonstrated many of them. My family in England feel politically homeless, and will undoubtedly vote Lib Dem after always having been part of Labour. I think it is ridiculous of the Labour leadership to constantly wave the bloody shirt of the Battle of Cable Street. My mother was born in 1923, and that happened when she was a teenager. It was three generations ago. It is the same as when the current members of the Republican Party tell us that Lincoln was a Republican, so therefore the Democrats must be the racists. I feel that anti-Semitism is currently ingrained in the British Labour Party leadership, and Chris Williamson trotting out anti-Zionist Jews like Jackie Walker, Norman Finkelstein, and Noam Chomsky is tokenism at its worst, and it also demonstrates how he differentiates between good Jews and bad Jews. Needless to say, the vast majority of British Jews, as well as the vast majority of American Jews, are bad Jews by his characterization. He also talks about elements in the media and elsewhere trying to subvert Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership. That certainly sounds like anti-Semitic conspiracy mongering about Jewish control of media and the financial institutions and something that goes back a long way. And is not necessarily limited to the Labour Party because you'll hear similar things from the Tories. Anyway, I do enjoy your podcast. 
Please excuse this rant, but after listening to Chris Williamson, I simply had to get that off my chest. Thank you so much, and thank you for allowing me to participate in your podcast, Roy Field. Thank you for the call, Patrick. I thought that the interview with Chris Williamson was a very important thing for us to attempt. Full disclosure, many people whose opinion I hold dear basically said don't do it. He has been deplatformed. He is somebody who is beyond the pale. I think it's important that we had him on the show to at least talk to him. He is somebody who has previously had somewhat of a stellar reputation as being a left of centre politician and somebody who his credentials up until a few years ago were beyond reproach, so to speak. One thing I do know about speaking to Chris, he is tone deaf to any level of criticism of him and to the Labour Party. And what he doesn't understand is how other people react to things that he says, the tone that he uses, and his blanket refusal that there is fundamentally no racism within the Labour Party. He did actually concede the point in the interview. He said that there are racists in society, the Labour Party has 600,000 members, ergo there will be some within the Labour Party, but he doesn't see it as being systemic. And he sees his criticism of Jewish members of the Labour Party as him just criticising members of the Labour Party who just happen to be Jewish. All I can say is people have to listen to the interview and draw their own conclusions. But thank you for the call, Patrick. And you, listener, you do have the ability to contribute to the show simply by going on to midatlanticshow.com and hitting the grey tab over on the right that says speak here. And it records a voice note, which you can then get your voice on the show. What we're trying to do here is to build a community of progressive left of centre thinkers who are discussing the issues of the day, wherever they are around the globe. Today, we're joined by UK political pundit and dancing diva Emma Burnell in London, by Laura Babcock in Canada, who's going to give us the, the election fallout in Canada, and by Maisha Box, a first-time caller, sorry, a first-time <laughs> voter. I hope you have called him before, Maisha. <laughs> <laughs> and by Maisha Box, a first-time voter in London. Say hello, folks. Hi, Hello. In a week that has seen Parliament in the UK vote in a new speaker, we ask just what are the election battle lines? The Labour government will get Brexit sorted within six months by giving you, the British people, the final say. And despite what some commentators want you to believe, Labour's plan for Brexit is clear and simple. That clear and simple policy new Brexit extension, negotiate new Brexit deal and then new referendum, all within six months. But the line you can expect to hear much more of from Labour during this election was this crowd pleaser. Our NHS is not for sale. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. The message the Conservatives want to push, though, is Brexit and then being the party to push it through quickly. A point Boris Johnson used his final cabinet meeting to tell the nation. We have it ready to go, oven ready. And the choice before the country is really very clear. Do you want to go forward with our agenda, 
which is to get Brexit done and then get on with delivering all the wonderful things we want to do for this country. From smiling incumbents who want a quick Brexit to challengers desperate to revoke Article 50 and deliver a £50 billion, quote, remain bonus for public services. When I look at Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, I am absolutely certain I could do a better job than either of them. The message from the Lib Dem launch, this is a leader who says she believes she can be Prime Minister despite only having 21 MPs at present. And however many MPs she has in six weeks' time, they won't be used to prop someone else up. I'm absolutely, categorically ruling out Liberal Democrat votes, putting Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. Last week, the gloves came off when the Brexit party threatened to wage war on the Tories. Yet for round one of this election, they put the gloves on and headed to the Labour-dominated North. Why? If you were a Labour leader living here, you know, you've got every right to feel very, very angry. And I think those, those voters are much more likely to vote Brexit party than they are to vote for a Conservative. Why is that? Because there's a cultural, tribal, you know, blue v red rosette uh, that goes back generations in families, whereas the Brexit party is a coming together of people from across the political spectrum. A lot of our candidates in areas like this are ex-Labour supporters themselves. The Tories are up two points, up to 42% of the vote compared to just a week ago. Labour are barely up just two percentage points, puts them up at 26%. Uh, Emma, conventional wisdom says that this is going to be a comfortable overall majority for the Tories. But this election is up for grabs, isn't it? Why is that? I mean, all elections are up for grabs. It's a long campaign. It's six weeks and... Conventional wisdom was absolutely convinced in 2017 that Theresa May was going to storm it, get a 100-seat majority, uh, and this is where we were in the polls this time then. Um, So Labour have turned it around once before. Whether they can do so again is a question that we will only find out the answer to in six weeks. Um, So for you, Emma, what are the major battle lines of the forthcoming election? Well... I think the key difference between now and 2017 is the proximity of Brexit. In Mm. 2017, although Theresa May tried to make it a Brexit election, it was actually in a bit of a Brexit no man's land. We'd triggered Article 50, but that had only, um, only, but only just, and that had started the countdown, but that countdown was quite a long one. So Brexit felt quite far away. So whereas the Tories were desperate to make that a Brexit election, um, actually, the Remain vote kind of lent itself to Labour to a certain extent, but Labour made it a much more domestic election about the state of public services, about the fact that we'd had seven years of austerity, um, and, and in general campaigned on much more domestic issues. This time around, Brexit is much closer. It feels much more real to most Remainers, and Labour... Labour's position is called unclear. It's not unclear. It's just not as strong as some Remainers would like it to be. So it's basically that they will renegotiate a deal so that there there is a deal that Labour considers livable with. And then they will put that deal versus remaining in the EU back to the people. That's Labour's position. Um, We don't know what that deal would be, but it would almost certainly involve at least a customs union and probably a customs union and alignment with the single market. If I was a dedicated leaver, I would say that's that's leaving 
but we are going to be governed by the diktats of the European Union, aren't we? If we have the customs union and then uh, we have yeah, a regulatory alignment to do with the single market, eh, so some levers would doing. certainly, yeah, absolutely. Some levers would absolutely say that that is perfect, and those levers are not going to be tempted to vote Labour as a result. Um, the question is whether those traditional Labour voters in Leave seats are more Labour or more Leave, and that I think is the big question of this election. Okay, um, in the last election, Labour had uh, a groundswell of votes from first-time voters, from uh, from young voters. Um, why is that? And can they hope to tap into that vein again in this election? They had an offer that was attractive to younger people uh, two years ago. Um, you know, if you are a young person at the moment, your likelihood of having capital, i.e. a home, essentially, or savings enough to be potentially able to buy a home is almost zero unless you're already from incredibly rich parents. Even I struggled for years and I am from you know decent middle class stock as it were <laughs> although it doesn't sound like it half the time. Um, but so why would you buy into capitalism if you have no capital? So what Labour was offering was a much stronger offer on public services, on education, they were going to abolish student fees, all things that young people and, you know, talked that language about, you know, we want you to get on the housing ladder, we're going to build enough of all the different types of houses that we need. Uh, And that was an attractive offer. Now, and again, I think a lot of young people voted um, Remain. I mean, I know a lot of young people voted Remain. Uh, it's the strongest age group that did so. But I think that they too were lending their votes to Labour, whatever their own politics was, in order to try and stop uh, Theresa May's Brexit. Maisha, you're going to be a first-time voter in a general election. You did vote uh, last year. Was that just in the local elections? Yeah, that was European elections, actually. OK, yeah. Mm. Um, so that was this year then. Yeah. Can you tell us exactly where you are, what's your constituency and who you are going to vote for? So I'm in the constituency of Hampstead and Kilburn, which is in mm-hmm. northwest London, um, partly in Brent. And for me, uh, I struggled with a long time because I don't currently feel satisfied with the way Labour has been handling certain issues. I don't quite feel satisfied with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But um, ultimately, uh, I am a Remainer and I don't want a hard Brexit. So because of the way our system works, unfortunately, I feel like ultimately tactical voting is the best. So I will go for Labour. But in the European elections, I went with Lib Dems just because I'm voting for Labour really because I have to. But I don't feel satisfied with a lot of their policies. So if we look at your constituency, Hampstead and Kilburn, the Labour Party won it by by a vote share of 59 percent, so over 34,000 votes. The Conservatives came in second and the Lib Dems third and the Lib Dems uh, vote share was 7 percent. So for you, it's quite simply it's a case of you would have voted Lib Dem. Um, However, you need to make sure that at least a, a, a party which is kind of roughly aligned with Remain needs to get your vote. This is purely and utterly a tactical vote because the Lib Dems are nowhere near looking likely to be able to get that seat. Yeah, and it's the same with the Greens. At the end of the day, I'd rather have a Labour MP. And our Labour MP, Tulip Sadiq, is, I feel, quite a good MP. She's done a lot for the community. She represents the community a lot. 
um, and she kind of represents our views. So ultimately, that is what I'd like to go with. But I'm not completely a Labour supporter all the way. No, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, frankly, most people, even most Labour members, not most Labour members, but a large proportion of Labour members, will have bits and pieces that they disagree with. And you're absolutely right. The part of the problem is the system that we that we have, the first-past-the-post system, forces you into making that much narrower choice than you would be happy with. And it also forces parties to be a much bigger coalition of views than they would necessarily be naturally. Um, do, do you think, Emma, uh, w- with that in mind and the fact that this is multi-dimensional chess this election you have um your economic viewpoint you have your social viewpoint and then you have uh, leave or remain and those things can all be at a variance with each other in terms of which party you think is the best to advocate any one of those three distinct issues how much will tactical voting play a part in whether you are a leave or remainer do you think I mean, it's all the conversation that we've had for the last week has been about tactical voting um, Mm. within the political sphere. Probably not everything that Maisha's been talking about at all. Um, But, you know, those of us who are insane and are going to be driven further insane in the next six weeks, um, that has been the conversation. You know, where do you vote tactically? Where do you find out uh, about tactical voting uh, from an unbiased source? Um, so I think it is absolutely a huge factor, but we just don't know. You know, there were so many things bubbling under at the last election that just weren't spotted by people like me. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, that such I'm, as such as Emma. Well, I uh, there was. I could see that the Tories were having a disastrous campaign. I could see that Labour were having a good campaign. I didn't see quite how big the turnaround was going to be between the two from from the local elections that had happened at the start of the election campaign where Labour were battered, um, I think he possibly even into third place, um, to Jeremy Corbyn adding 10% of the vote share to the vote share of 2015 at the 2017 general election. No, I did not call that. I went for a... I do... In fact, I have to find out if I'm going to be doing it again this time. Uh, it was on RTE radio, the Irish mm-hmm. radio um, station, in both 2015 and 2017 with my good friend Nick Dennis, who is a conservative. And um, in 2015, we had the exit poll and my face fell and he was punching the air. And we went for a quick gin and tonic before doing the 2017 one. And he said, what do you think is going to happen? And he said he thought Theresa May would win an 80-seat majority. Mm-hmm. And I said, I think she has fucked up, messed up, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, she And she's only going to get a 30-seat majority and she's in trouble with the party. And how wrong we both were. And the exact inverse of the face-falling uh, air punching <laughs> happened at that mm-hmm. moment. <laughs> All right. So... Um- If we look at potential outcomes, it's either going to be a Conservative Party uh, majority, however big or small, a Labour Party majority, however big or small, or a hung parliament. What do the Conservative Party need to do to achieve the the majority? Currently, they hold a 16-point lead over Labour. Who is the Conservatives' ideal uh, voter, target voter? We're not talking about their core constituency. And which bits of the country do they need to make gains? 
uh, I mean, I think the key areas where they're going to be trying to make gains are in Labour leave seats. So mm-hmm. places like the West Midlands are going to be particularly important to them, a place I'm sure you know very well. <laughs> um, I think they are going to try some places in the Northwest and maybe Yorkshire as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be fast because these are not traditional. I mean, the West Midlands has a more strong tradition of voting Tory than the North or Yorkshire. Although bits of Yorkshire are very, very Tory. And we always forget that when we think yeah. of Richmond, etc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that that what that is where they'll be aiming for and that is absolutely you you just look at their pitch and that's completely what they're going for the problem is they're also turning off a lot of their voters in places like the southwest um and they lose seats um, and that and that's because of their views on brexit not just because of their views on brexit because actually cornwall for example voted for brexit but mm. it is because of who they're aiming um, those views at and how they're doing it. So a lot of their sort of traditional, comfortably centrist, middle-class Tory vote are very put off by the Conservative style at the moment. The whole kind of um, Boris Johnson proroguing Parliament, um, acting like a sort of royal prerogative, is very off-putting to small-c conservatism um, that often voted Tory. So they may well lose a lot of seats to to the Lib Dems around the southwest, and maybe one or two to Labour around the sort of um, London Ring. So the commuter belt. Maisha, you are our proxy young person, so <laughs> you have um, you have the weight and the aspirations of all young people uh, fairly uh, on your mind and on your on your shoulders for the yeah. sake of this conversation. So. Um, Broadly and squarely, um, most young adults, first-time voters, um, be- want to remain in the European Union. But putting that to one side, what other issues are important to you? And remember, you're speaking for all first-time voters <laughs> in the United Kingdom. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Um, I think, actually, for from kind of what I've been talking to about my friends and from what I've heard, Brexit, I think, is still quite an important issue. Um, for a lot of young people, I think they're still concerned about social issues. But I think because Brexit has kind of consumed Parliament and it seemed to brought it to a standstill, I think it's made a lot of young people think maybe I didn't have strong opinions about Brexit, but it's having such an impact on our Parliament. Something mm-hmm. needs to be done because the things we care about more, I think the NHS, I also do think police, it's having an impact on that. And actually the things we want to talk about like those we can't until this gets sorted. So actually, they're having to become more influenced because at the end of the day... So, something no, it's interesting. You're, you're, so you're not talking about like student debt or tuition fees. I, I would have thought those would have been second after, after um, Brexit. You would think so. And I think maybe because the, when I was maybe three, four years ago, I heard young people and definitely people I know talking about it a bit more. But I think one, because of Brexit and also since whether any outcome, there'll be any outcome. But since they announced that review into university fees, I haven't heard young people talk about it as much because I think one, Brexit has become so overwhelming, but also because they perceive that some action is being taken, even if it's just the review and recommendations, some action is being taken. Mm -hmm. Uh, And thirdly, I also think the Labour Party promised to 
get rid of uh, tuition fees, but the last election is still stuck in a lot of people's minds. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of banked, as it were. Yeah. Um, and I also think recently Labour's uh, move or, well, initial move to get rid of all private schools, which they've maybe now backtracked on a little bit. I've also had a lot of young people talking about that. And actually, in terms of schools, that's taken over the conversation, because even among some friends I know who are uh, kind of left wing, not all the way, but quite left wing, say, um, yeah, say they don't agree with it. So actually, that's been an interesting point of discussion where we've been quite split. That's really okay. interesting. Mm. Um, Emma, uh, what does the Labour Party have to do to achieve a majority? What is it's going to be its key election uh, manifesto uh, pledges? I well, they they so far they seem to be going very hard on the NHS, classic mm-hmm. Labour. I mean, you know, has there ever been an election or? any form of any uh, politicking where Labour hasn't gone very strong on the NHS. Um, But they are, you know, at the moment they're playing quite a defensive game. Um, That will change when the manifesto comes out, obviously. Um, I suspect it will be very similar to the 2017 manifesto, but maybe with a bit more sort of beefed up socialism. Um, uh, It will... It will be very interesting to see. I mean, the 2017 manifesto was very popular. It was mm-hmm. basically the 2015 manifesto with a bit more beefed up socialism. So it's, um, it's interesting to see how far they'll go along that journey and how tactically they'll play it. It's interesting you say that the Labour Party is going to go hard on the NHS because um, looking at the uh, looking at the opinion polls, uh, 59% of voters say that the NHS is the most important issue facing the country. However, 40% say that the party's policies on Brexit will still determine eventually how they'll vote, with only 18% citing the NHS as the most important single issue. Doesn't this then mean that Labour just have to revisit its Brexit strategy and go hard on Brexit? This is an election all about that, isn't it? It is an election all about that, but Labour absolutely don't want it to be an election all about that. Um, and there are, I mean, basically what Labour is going to have to learn to do is pivot. Um, so they, you know, if you want to talk about Brexit, well, absolutely, let's talk about Brexit and the effect it will have when the Tories have to sell our NHS to Donald Trump. That's how the Labour is going to play this election. If you're a Brexiteer or a Brexit purist in terms of this issue is the most important issue to you, um, it seems that Labour has the weakest hand. You kind of know what you're going to get with the Tories. You definitely know what, you, what you're going to get with the Brexit party. Uh, and the Lib Dems are like, well, we're just going to revoke full stop. And the Lib Dems are up uh, one point, so they're up at 16%. Will there be a Swinson bounce? And how many seats can the Lib Dems hope to win, Emma? The Lib Dems are absolutely convinced that Swinson is their asset. Um, all the leaflets I've seen from several different constituencies all have a picture of her on the front. Mm-hmm. Um, they are la- leading a very sort of singular Swinson-led campaign. I'd be really interested to hear, actually, from Aisha, what you think of Jo Swinson, uh, whether you think she's an asset um, I do, I've liked her for a while, and I, I do think that their policy of revoking Article 50 without a referendum, I definitely wasn't expecting it, it definitely <laughs> caught me off guard. Before she actually announced it, I was like, actually, that'd be a really good idea. But once she announced it, I thought, and seeing the reaction, I actually was like, maybe it's not a good idea, because as much as I don't really like referendums as politics students studying them, it's quite infuriating, it happened um, and 52% of people voted for it. So I feel to revoke it 
just without a referendum, you're possibly doing more damage mm. than good because you risk further splitting country along those fault lines that are already there. And it just, I remember seeing it and it took me back to actually the 2017 election with Theresa May and the Conservatives. And I just slightly worry because for me, a large part of that election downfall was they put a lot of it on Theresa May. It was Theresa May and the Conservatives. And we saw how that ended. It ended quite disastrously. So I, I, re- I like her as a politician, but I worry their stance and pinning it all on her isn't the best move to try and win over a wide range of voters if they want to increase their seats. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with all of that. Um, I, you know, if it were just up to me, I would revoke tomorrow. But the point is, it's not just up to me. We never should have had the first referendum. No, no. But once we had that, democratically, you cannot stop Brexit without it going back to the people. Yeah, and that's the worry I have. So potentially the Lib Dems, Emma, can hold some kind of balance of power and they are targeting, generally they are targeting Tory seats in the South West and kind of outside of London. Um, What about the SNP? What is their strategy in this election? And are we going to have a complete and utter Labour wipeout north of the border? Well, their strategy is to have an election before Alex Salmon goes to jail, um, potentially, um, which... The trial of Alex Salmon starts in January, which is why the SNP ended up backing a December election. Uh, and at the moment, that is absolutely working for them as a strategy because, yes, you, we may well see um, a near total wipeout of the Labour Party in Scotland and of the Tories in Scotland. And once again, going back to where we were in 2015 with the SNP basically holding everything. And then that means that potentially the SNP could be holding the balance of power in the UK Parliament, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing for the Labour Party now, would it? Or for the Lib Dems? It wouldn't necessarily be bad for any Remain supporting party, basically. Um, and I think that the the line that was so devastating to Labour that the that Ed Miliband was just going to be in the SNP's pocket in 2015 has actually lost quite a lot of its power since Theresa May has had to make a deal with um, the uh, Democratic Unionist Party. So we're now very used to having our politics controlled by one of the parties that belong to only one of the nations. Mm. So I just I just feel like maybe that's a hair that won't run this time because it doesn't have nearly anything like the impact that it used to have. How significant is it that Sinn Féin have decided to step down in three seats in Northern Ireland? And one of them is uh, so they can, uh, in effect, give uh, their remain supporting voters uh, the opportunity to at least vote for a unionist remaining uh, candidate. Uh, It's incredibly significant. I mean, it's fascinating because Sinn Féin don't take up their seats so in some ways, it won't change Parliament all that much. But it's for them to do this is quite an extraordinary thing because they mm. have, you know, they've been fighting these elections as long as they've existed. Yeah, you know, it, it to, for them to make a decision like that about their behaviour in the the UK Parliament, you can just imagine how difficult that must be to people who. You know, 30 years ago, this party were, you know, refused to acknowledge the, and still refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of the UK Parliament to an extent. So to, to actually make a decision to impact the UK Parliament in this way is 
I think just an extraordinary move. Emma, why is the Brexit party running and how damaging will this be to the Tory party, considering that surely they're going to leech away hardcore Leave voters? Um, well, they've given the Tories an ultimatum. They ha- um, they've said that if the Tories don't decide in two weeks to just go for a no-deal Brexit, which I don't think they're going to, then they will run in all 600 seats. Um, will it affect Tory... It will, in- it will bite into the Tory votes, but in 2015, Labour was very complacent about UKIP um, hurting mm-hmm. the Tories more than Labour. And actually, you know, the... the the difference was not that. UKIP, uh, the Brexit party, may well be the place where Labour leave voters who just cannot, constitutionally cannot vote Tory, just can't do it, um, in places like the, the ones we were discussing earlier, do take their vote. And then that then depresses the Labour vote and the Tories come through the middle. So we don't know what the – I mean, I'm really sorry because I feel like the next six weeks, every time you and I talk, my answer to every question is going to be, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you sound like a seasoned election pundit then. So, <laughs> Laura Babcock. Hello, Laura. It's Royfield. How are you? Hi. Good. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. If you're a seasoned listener of Mid-Atlantic, you'll know that uh, a couple of weeks ago we spoke to Canadian political pundit Laura Babcock about the runners and riders in the forthcoming Canadian election. Now, that election saw a hung parliament, something which people say the UK is probably going to have with its forthcoming election in December. Laura, uh, what have been the big takeaways from that Canadian result? The big takeaway from the Canadian result is that even though the Conservative Party got the popular vote, uh, one third of all Canadians strategically voted. They decided that they wanted to wait pretty much until the final week in order to prevent uh, a party from taking a majority. And so it was a bit of a smack on the hand for Justin Trudeau and his Liberals saying, you know what, you disappointed us. So we're going to give you a minority, but it wasn't uh, enough of a rebuke to take him away as prime minister. So he he's still the prime minister. Uh, he has been chastened a little bit and will hopefully be making some adjustments. But Canadians just weren't ready to go with a conservative government. Uh, and so that the real takeaway is that Canadians this time were not inspired particularly. They were more just trying to prevent a change that they didn't want to see. So they voted against something as opposed to for something. And that speaks to the climate in the country. Nobody has really captured the imagination of Canadians like last time. It seemed as though Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, was starting to capture the imagination of Canadians, but it just wasn't enough time for him to really build that kind of momentum. And I think a lot of people thought, you know, not this time around for him. We'll keep the Liberal Party in place uh, and uh, we'll just see if a minority government can get along. So the the leader of the Conservative Party, Shia, he seems to be kind of battling to hold his position. Now, they had, wasn't it, plus 30 seats on their last result. Why wasn't that good enough for Conservative members? Because the Conservatives convinced themselves that Justin Trudeau was severely damaged. They tried to put out the narrative that he'd lost the moral authority to lead. But that was an overreach for how angry Canadians really were with Trudeau. 
And we've seen that with the conservatives before, where they underestimate Trudeau and his appeal. I don't think they take into consideration some of the historical brand and value of the Trudeau government. There's still a lot of voters who care about his father and have fond memories of the Trudeau era. So uh, I don't think conservatives properly estimated how popular he remains in spite of some of his stumbling. And also the Conservative Party has a history of having long knives for their leaders. They don't tend to like to lose. They, you know, they don't really fall in love with their leaders. There doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of loyalty. So it's not surprising that Andrew Scheer is going to have to fight to remain a leader, even though he grew their caucus. But because he wasn't able to completely take it away from Justin Trudeau, he's going to, there's already some conservative voices and conservative media calling for him to go. They, they really convinced themselves that this was their opportunity to take away Trudeau's leadership and take him away as prime minister. And they just didn't achieve that. So because they set their expectations so high, he fell short of their expectations. The People's Party lost their one seat. What has that done to that far right vote, do you think now, with that election result? I think it was a relief for many Canadians. And uh, you had mentioned when we spoke that you hoped he would be relegated to the dustbin of history. And it certainly seems that way. Uh, they, they were completely repudiated by Canadian voters. And after how contentious and, and how much racial animus had been stirred up because of that particular party making it onto the national debate stage uh, and fielding candidates in so many ridings, I, I think that Canadians felt that they were getting a little too close to the kind of uh, racial animus and things that we were seeing in the United States and elsewhere. And they didn't want anything to do with that. So that was a big relief. I think a lot of Canadians felt that they could handle a minority government where there'll have to be a lot of negotiations and we might be back in an election in 16 months or something. But to not have uh, a party that was essentially anti-immigration on the national stage was a relief. The Green Party increased uh, their seat uh, representation in Parliament, but not by much. How exactly are they feeling right now, considering one of the key issues you said in this last election actually were green issues? Well, it's interesting because Trudeau now is signaling that they are going to make their biggest focus on the green economy and climate change. So they got the message that as the governing party, if you will, that the climate change issue really had forged its way to the top of the agenda as the ballot issue in this country. And a lot of credit goes to Elizabeth May and the Greens for constantly promoting that message. The fact that they got 10, they at one point were pulling at 10%. They kind of disappointed in the final result. And I think that goes back to strategic voting. People might have liked the Green Party and Elizabeth May personally, but they were afraid that a vote for the Greens might in fact end up with a conservative government, for instance. So given that we know so many people strategically voted, it probably would have hurt her results. The other thing too, is that Elizabeth May has always been stronger as a parliamentarian, as an issues-based person than she is as a general leader. And so the Greens had a kind of a lackluster finish to the election. And she is already talking about she stepped down as leader of the party in, in that context. She wants to stay in Parliament and possibly even run for the speaker uh, so that she can. And I think she'd probably be very good at that job. She's It's good to have a party that doesn't have a lot of representation in Parliament to act as the speaker and to have that 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 ability on a tie vote. So Elizabeth May might have a future, but it will be in more of the parliamentary context where she really excelled as opposed to on the campaign trail. 
Maisha, green issues are very important to you. And as we said at the start of the show, you are our proxy young person speaking for young people all over the UK for young adults. And now you're speaking for, for young people the planet over. Do you feel frustrated that established political parties and, and politicians don't readily put enough weight behind green issues? Um, I definitely do. Um, and I feel like and it can be quite frustrating. I mean, a lot of people at my school, a lot of people in my class, went on the climate strikes on Friday over the last year and a half. We feel passionately about these things. I think maybe this is something I didn't say before, which maybe I should have, is that green issues, I feel, amongst young people are very high. And I feel like definitely a lot of the kind of established figures or the established politicians aren't focusing enough and aren't taking it seriously enough, maybe because they see things like Extinction Rebellion and they think, well, that's what everyone who worries about green issues is like, when actually that's not the full picture. It's a very narrow picture. There are a lot of people who don't go on those protests all the time who care a lot about green issues, but they can't go on those protests for whatever reason. So I feel like it is very, very frustrating. And you do want the Green Party to get more representation because they do care about it. And yes, the government is saying, we'll do this, we'll do that. But they'll say, oh, we'll do this in 20 years. And when we say, oh, no, we need to do this sooner, or it would save money, which is surely what governments want. It would save money to do this sooner. They're not listening. They say, no, we've got a target, but we're just going to stick to that. And it can be extremely frustrating. So when you when you get kind of excited about green politics, are you looking at uh, Greta Thornburg? Is she basically like your your role model, somebody you see as somebody who is extolling uh, the the climate emergency issues, or are you looking at Caroline Lucas, who's the head of the Green Party in the UK? Um, specifically, where do you get your information from, and which politicians, which activists, actually excite you? I have great admiration for Caroline Lucas. She's one of my favourite politicians. Uh, I also do have admiration for Greta Thunberg, especially because she's not. She's made the decision to put herself out there, put herself on the world stage. She clearly cares very passionately about the issues. I think sometimes, sometimes the way she speaks, she can alienate some people. And I also think sometimes the people around her, if that makes sense, the way they portray her do make her come under potential attack for criticism, but I have a great amount of admiration for her. And I think it is easy to dismiss her because she is a teenager. And unfortunately, I think that's what a lot of politicians are doing. I think it is hard for her as a teenager, as a girl, to get any traction with mainstream media. But she is a voice out there that is important. But you also need people like Caroline Lucas, who is mainstream, who is respected, also doing work. But I have great admiration for her. And I think she is a voice that we need in the uh, climate change discussion. And uh, just just to finish up with you, uh, Laura, we haven't spoke about the block and I've been taken to task about my pronunciation of uh, Quebec. I think I've said it. I said you've got to say it with a K, (laughs) not with a Q. So I'm doing the Anglophone English pronunciation, (laughs) but the Kibaka uh, block. So tell us about how exactly they did in, in the election and what pivotal role they might play in the new parliament. They did very well in the election. They took the NDP seats away. And, and the fact that the NDP in the last federal election had so many seats in Quebec was kind of a, a bit of a surprise. So nobody was really surprised when the bloc took a lot of those seats back. 
if the if the bloc hadn't been such a force in Quebec, then we might be looking at a Trudeau liberal majority again. But because those seats went from the NDP to the bloc, uh, it kept the it kept the liberals really down at a minority. So the bloc has some power in the uh, parliament. They are not, it doesn't seem, going to be pursuing separatism at this point. Uh, if they are able to get use their leverage on some key initiatives that matter, particularly to Quebec, then that is what essentially they got elected for, to be able to uh, really get more from the federal government, to be able to pursue some of Quebec's idiosyncrasies. It's very different than the rest of Canada in many ways. And what's interesting, too, is that because there's another almost like a Brexit movement attempting to start in the West, the Liberals picked up no votes in Saskatchewan and Alberta. So that's given some opportunistic Albertan politicians the idea that there could be a Wexit kind of a move. Uh, So the idea of a a Western alienation and separation, it actually, the Bloc Québécois, by looking as though they're willing to work within Canada, makes them actually look a little bit stronger. So they're in a very good position. With a minority government in Canada, it's really about getting the votes on side that you need. And Trudeau's in a good position, especially on climate change, because uh, he can pick up the NDP's mantle on climate change a little bit more. He can be a little bit more aggressive with targets, knowing how strongly Canadians and Canadian youth feel about climate change. And he'll probably get the votes uh, support on that, uh, where there are other issues that he's going to need the Bloc, Quebec, uh, the Bloc on. He'll have to work with them. So it's really going to be about negotiation, but the bloc is in an excellent position to leverage what they need for the people in Quebec who voted for them. Just before we absolutely say goodbye to you, and I I must admit, I did marvel um, and say this to you before, but boy, oh boy, do you speak incredibly fast, but succinctly and detailedly. So you, you, you speak in all the ways which I could only ever hope that I could ever speak. You know, I fluff <laughs> and I go around the houses and whatever, but you are a machine. So, so uh, props <laughs> to you in that regard. But very last thing, let me just understand Quebec, I think I've said it correctly, uh, politics, um, because it seems to be like this four-way split. So when the, the bloc does well, does that mean that the NDP do badly or is it the Liberal Party and and are the Conservative seats fundamentally the Anglophone areas which are always going to be the Conservative seats in Quebec? Quebec politics are complex as you know and uh, the, there is a belief held amongst many in Quebec and I used to live there back I lived there during the first attempt at a separation referendum. The, uh, the Quebec politics right now are are in a in a disappointing place in terms of some of their anti-immigration and and what are seen as some racist laws that they're trying to put in. So there is uh, there's some roiling of racial animus in Quebec that I think the rest of Canada became more aware of because of this election. Uh, and that is not something that the rest of Canada, I think, is going to be very comfortable with with Quebec. And so we might do that kind of dynamic play out at some point uh, federally. But in terms of Quebec policies, they tend to be... Um, not as much of a conservative province in a lot of ways. They're they're growing up in Quebec. Certainly, you got a sense that they were more uh, a little bit more cosmopolitan, if you will, especially in the main urban areas, and more progressive on a number of their policy fronts. Because Trudeau and the Liberals had struck such a strong history in Quebec, coming from the Montreal riding 
of Papineau and the fact that they very much represent a Quebec Canadian brand. I think that there's always going to be an appeal for the Liberal brand in Quebec, not just with Trudeau, also with Gretchen and some others. So Quebec's, Quebec's its own little place. <laughs> it has, it has uh, a lot of different things going on. But obviously, to see the success of the bloc, that idea around uh, Quebec party federally uh, is is still extremely popular. I don't think we're going to see any any Quebec or I guess what what would they call it? Kexit or Quexit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to be seeing any of that anytime soon. Uh, I think the bloc wants to be more pragmatic and just wants to, as I said, leverage more support from Ottawa for uh, the way that Quebecers want to live. So Quebecers, have a, many of them feel very much a part of Canada, but also there's a sense that they, they deserve to be treated for the differences that they see within their own culture. Laura Babcock, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and giving us yet again another masterful sweep of Canadian politics. My pleasure. Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time, folks, where we put politics to one side and we get all nice and cuddly and we we think about the human spirit and just humanity in general. And we talk about something nice. Now, king of nice things is Emma Burnell. So king or queen? (laughs) You should be the queen. You should be the queen. You are the queen of all things nice. I'm I'm a Republican, so I'd rather be the president. And I would like to stress I'm a small R Republican. <laughs> yes, yes. You're not a Republican in the American sense. No. Um, which is which is one of the th- which one of the bones of contention that we actually have because I am actually, um, dare I say, a little bit of a monarchist, but purely for sentimental reasons. But we, let's not get into that. <laughs> Absolutely, not, not that for right now. <laughs> now. Not for now, exactly. So give us your takeaway of the last seven days. So um, as I may have mentioned like a billion times, I'm currently mm-hmm. writing a play. Um, which I am really, really enjoying. I'm going to playwriting classes um, with a very good teacher. Um, and 
whatever mood I walk into that class in, I walk out feeling really, really excited and happy. And I go home and I start work on my play mm. straight away. Um, and my play is based uh, around the music of Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. So I have been listening to Leonard Cohen almost nonstop um, in order to get inspiration. And it has just been such a joy and a pleasure to revisit like such an old friend, if you know what I mean. I saw Leonard Cohen live a couple of times. Okay, with my ex-husband, but you can't have everything. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the man was just an absolute bloody legend with the world's most incredible sexy deep voice and the poetry is so beautiful and it's been so inspiring to me um both for the play but also just in general to be walking around thinking about these things and listening to this lovely music well you know what i i've always been aware of the name leonard cohen good friend of mine um Susan Ray, you know, the, the BBC announcer. She's a mm. massive Lennon Cohen fan. And so is uh, my daughter's grandmother. Loves yeah. Lennon Cohen, doesn't she, Maisha? Yeah. She loves Leonard Cohen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, so what you're saying, years. Maisha, is that I sound like your grandma. <laughs> well, that's where I'm going with this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's women of a certain vintage, generally, that have a thing <laughs> for this old Canadian, isn't it? <laughs> So what, what is what is it about him? What is it about him and um, his, I would say, melancholic, uh, deadpan vocal delivery, which so um, excites you? So he's definitely deadpan, but he's absolutely, he's got this reputation for being melancholic that is completely and utterly false. So when mm. I saw him the um, first time, it was at the O2, and he bounded on stage, age 76, Mm. ran on stage like a teenager. Probably what killed him in the end. And said, last time I was here in London, I was just a 60-year-old kid with a dream. (laughs) (laughs) How can you not love that man? (laughs) You know what we'll do? We'll we'll play out this episode of Mid-Atlantic with a little bit of Leonard Cohen. How's that? Play um, Ain't No Cure for Love, because that's what my play's called. (laughs) All right. Ain't No Cure for Love, it is. Now, Maisha Box... Now, we've had uh, the, uh, the the takeaway of the week from... Actually, how old are you? I'm 44, Emma. you bugger. Well, well, I'm not a woman 44. of a certain vintage. Well, well, but you're acting like it, like <laughs> in a bit of Leonard Cohen. So, 44-year-old, more acting more like a 74-year-old, right? Stop. We've had your time. Stop shaking your head, right? <laughs> so let's go to a true young woman, someone, a first-time voter, as we've always established on, on the show. Um, hit us with your takeaway the last seven days. Maisha Box. Um, it's definitely been interesting. Uh, a lot of political action. Um, definitely a nerve-wracking time. I'm still quite not sure how I feel about some of the things that have been going on. Definitely with some things that have said my views have changed a little bit. Hmm. Um, so I'm dreading the general election. Yeah, but Maisha, Maisha, <laughs> where you can right, the whole point of takeaways is when you get your voice on the show. Get away from politics. We like to, we like uh, to hear you, I the listeners, like to, watch uh, to join in the me and your mother again, try and yank you away from, 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 the, from the box and chat. from YouTube. So tell us what you're watching on YouTube right now. What's your favourite uh, channel? Well, the main show I'm watching is His Dark Materials, the BBC adaptation by Philip Pullman. Watched the first episode on Sunday. Couldn't take my eyes off it. I was gripped. It's amazing. 
definitely okay. recommend. You absolutely well, recommend yeah, it, do yeah, you? Yeah. All right, cool. And it's not making you sound like a young fogey or anything like that. You liking this? No, 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 no. No, everybody liked it. I mean, I was, I've yeah. never seen Twitter be so unanimous. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what my takeaway is, but it's very quickly because I know we're on a, a we're on a constrained time this week. Is um, quite simply, I've had it with the Cleveland Browns. That team. <laughs> That team have so flattered to utterly deceive and let me down this year. So we started before the start of the season. We had Odell Beckham Jr., um, the best wide receiver in the NFL. He joined us. Our quarterback is supposed to be some star quarterback. We said we're going to breeze all of our way into the uh, playoffs. And we are two and six, which means we've won two games. We've lost six. And there's no reason for us to lose to the Denver Broncos. I've had it with American football, with the Cleveland Browns. They should not have their monkey to be my surname. I, I'm thoroughly, utterly fed up with the team. And, I'll, and I will be supporting them again next week and feeling thoroughly upset again. So that's my takeaway of the week. Do not support the Cleveland Browns. Okay, folks, so that has been our election special where we've looked at the Canadian uh, general election the fallout of it and we've looked at the prospects of the Labour Party the Tory Party the Lib Dems and the Brexit Party in the UK for the forthcoming election on December the 12th don't forget you can contact us by going onto our website which is midatlanticshow.com and hitting the speak pipe app where you can send us a little voice message and get your voice on the show because that's what we like to we like to hear you the listeners uh to join in with our conversation see you all again in approximately two weeks time for some more left of center political chat but i i want to tell you something that uh, i think will not easily be contradicted there ain't no cure for love Good
ships are climbing through the sky The holy books are open wide The doctor's working day and night But they'll never ever find that cure Tell them angels. I see you in the subway, and I see you riding in the bus. I see you lying down with me, and I see you waking up. I see your hands, I see your, your hair, your bracelet, and your brush. And I call to you, I call to you, but I don't call soft enough. There ain't no cure, there ain't no cure, there ain't no cure for love. I walked into this empty church There was no place else to go When the sweetest voice I ever heard Whispered to my soul I don't need to be forgiven For loving you so much It's written in the scripture It's written there in blood I've even heard the angel declare it from above There ain't no cure There ain't no cure for love Ships are climbing through the sky The holy books are open wide The doctors working day and night But they'll never ever find that cure Dino Soldo on the saxophone Sharon Robinson Patty and Charlie Webb, the Webb sisters. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 